We thank you, Lord, for being here, for inviting us, for joining us, for surrounding us and filling us and the sense of your presence already. Some of us are today in a place where we can celebrate your love, and we do. For some of us, Lord, we don't have the energy. We just need to float. And thank you for the invitation to float in your love today. And we also, Lord, we thank you, we celebrate, we acknowledge the peace that's ours because of who you are and what you've done in us and to us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to begin this morning with a true-false test that kind of sets us up for our topic today. We're going to be today talking about marriage, but we're going to talk about it in such a way that it peels back the principle, the truth underneath it that applies to all of us. So even if you're not married, today is good for you. And we're going to be looking at one of those passages from the Bible that you read and some of you read and you just go crazy. You want to think, what in the world? And we're going to unpack that today. And I hope that it will be a blessing to you. But I'm going to begin with a true-false test. And I don't want you to answer out, I had thought, I might have you stand, but I'm not. You know, that would be embarrassing to all of us. So just make note of the answers as as you go through how many of these that you get right and wrong. Quick true-false test. Question number one, the divorce rate for first-time marriages in America is over 50%. Don't answer out. Just make note of your own answer. True or false? It's shocking, isn't it? The divorce rate in America is over, for first-time marriages, is over 50%. That's actually false. The divorce rate was at its highest in the 80s, and it was over 40%. It's now just over 30%. So kind of the horror of marriage is a little bit of a myth, but this should be a warning to those of you who are 12 years into marriage and thinking, what in the world am I doing? The reason the divorce rate quoted is so, so high is because second and third marriages tend to get divorces at a much higher rate than the 30-plus percent that first marriages end in. Second question, divorce rates are different for Christians than non-Christians because of our connection to God. Divorce rates are better for Christians than non-Christians. True or false? That also is false. The divorce rate for Christians is almost exactly what it is for people who are not Christians. Interestingly, statistically, they found that the only thing that really makes a difference, measurable difference, are those couples that report praying together regularly. Divorce rates uh, decrease. Third question, marriage makes people happier. Okay, come on, what is that reaction? (laughs) That was from the people that have been married more than 25 years, right? Marriage makes people happier, true or false, and you might have guessed the answer is once again false. I mean, huge number of studies, surveys too many to name. They test people, it's a mess self-analysis, but they test people's happiness level before they're married and then after they're married and, you know, then years after they're married. And what they found is that the happiness level, your happiness level, is almost exactly the same after you're married as it was before you're married. There is an initial bump in happiness and then you retreat back to where you were before. The news there is, for those of you who are single... 
this is not going to solve all your problems. So it's not going to make you happier. Fourth, this is interesting. I'm going to ask you, uh, if you're here with someone, I want you to turn to them and give them your answer on this one. What do you think the average age is that people are getting married today? What's the average age that people are getting married today? Turn and tell someone, if you're here with someone. Yeah, first marriage. Thank you, Javen. I'm sorry, first marriage. So we're not going to count the 70-year-olds, but first marriage. I bet you some of you got close to this. By the way, it's the oldest it's ever been. For women, it's 27. For men, it's 29. And the oldest it's ever been. Last question. This is a true-false question. Women are weaker than men. Let's don't do that one. Let's don't even do that one. We're not going to go there. So I'm going to ask my lovely assistant, and may I say... This is my wife, Diane. For those of you who are visiting, I'm Ed. I'm one of the pastors here. And I know, I always tell her that we're one of those how couples. People walk by us and go, how in the world did he get her? But this is my wife, and she's going to read the scripture for us today because I don't want you throwing tomatoes at me when you hear the scripture. We're going to talk about marriage today. And this is going to be especially important for those of us who are married or who want to be married. If you're not married, this is good for us because it will help you pray for your married friends and they need it. As I said, at the end today, we're going to get to the underlying principle. There's there's a lesson underneath today's marriage topic, and we're going to spend some time there. So don't worry, even if you're not married, you're here for a reason. It's just an important kind of spiritual principle that goes beyond just the marriage relationship. So we're going to read one of those doozy texts. We've been this summer working our way through the little letter in the back of the New Testament, 1 Peter. and The Apostle Peter wrote this to a a collection of churches that were in a province that is in modern-day Turkey, and they were experiencing difficulty, in some cases extreme difficulty, and often for their faith. They were being tested and tried. Peter writes this letter basically to tell them how to respond. And we've called this series of lessons Endure. And you're going to hear a bit more about why that is today. But today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look. We're going to walk through this passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And it's awesome. But look, don't Warning to those of you who are sensitive to this kind of thing, especially younger women, don't walk out. Let us get through it, and then we'll see how you do. So 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. Let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. And Diane is going to read it. One more thing, Diane, before you start. Some of you know that the English Bible has several different translations. And almost every Sunday, I read from a translation called the New International Version. The English Standard Version just has a really rich, I think, translation of verse 7. And I think it captures the sense of it better than the New International Version. So, I've never done this before, but we're going to read the first six verses from the New International Version, and then the seventh verse from the English Standard Version. So, Diane, start for us. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay, pause. All right, thank you guys for coming. We'll see you all in a... (laughs) I'm just kidding, Diane. Okay, let's start over. Okay. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, 
when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thank you, ma'am. You may be seated. What in the world do we do with that? Okay, in order to understand what this passage says to us, we're going to have to do four things this morning. We're not going to spend a ton of time except on the first one, but we need to do four things. First, we've got to look at what the passage says to wives. Secondly, we're going to have to separate the passage from how it is often misused. Thirdly, we'll look at what it says to husbands. We'll do that briefly because Peter does it briefly. And then finally, we need to identify the timeless principle that fuels this lesson. In other words, what's in it for all of us? All right, number one, what does this passage say to wives? It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Glad I did not issue tomatoes at the door today. Now, let's be honest. Part of the reason that some of you might struggle with this is because most of this passage can be summarized with this one instruction. Most of the passage falls under that instruction. I mean, it's not like it's a side point we can ignore. He's making this point. Submit. Other translations will say, be subject to or defer to. Then Peter answers three questions about this submission. So I want you to hear what Peter says about the submission before you judge me or him. Because I think this is a word from God and I don't think you're here by accident. He answers three questions. One, what's the reason for the submission? Two, what are the boundaries of it? How far should submission go? Three, what specifically will husbands notice about their uh, submissive wives? All right, number one, what's the reason for the submission? Okay, this teaching is so often misunderstood and misused. We're going to take a minute here. I'm going to step outside of Peter for a second, and I'm going to give you two reasons why wives are encouraged, instructed to submit. The first reason comes from the Apostle Paul and not from this passage, but this is an important principle, and I want to take a second here. So, first of all, wives should submit to husbands because it is what their husbands need. It's consistent with the way the husband is designed. As I said, Paul offers a similar teaching in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen, I'm going to read this. Ephesians 5 verses 22 and 23, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your husbands, same thing, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. As to the Lord, by which Paul means submit to your husband as a way of submitting to the Lord. The Lord designed your husband in such a way that he needs your respect, and this will be eminently encouraging to him. Larry Crabb is a Christian psychologist, and he says that all of our needs, all of our needs can be summarized at their root in two things. We need significance and we need security. And basically, everything else that we feel, everything else that we need kind of rests on those two needs. Interestingly, Crabb says in his experience, 
men tend to struggle more with knowing their lives matter. We all have the need for significance and security, but men, he says, tend to struggle more knowing that their lives matter. There's a reason that the stereotype fragile male ego exists. We are pretty fragile, ladies. Now, ultimately, significance comes from God, but we can be conduits of encouraging significance in one another's lives, and that's especially the case of wives when they're husbands. I have to tell you, as an aside, my wife, those of you who know her, know she is spectacular. I tell her weekly, it has been a privilege being married to her for 107 years. <laughs> I married her when I, she was really young. I was already old. But over the years, I've realized this. It's 20 years into marriage before I realized this. Every time I get really mad with Diane, and it doesn't happen often, but every time I get really mad with her, it's because I feel minimized. Now, I'm not saying I, that she did minimize me, but that's how I feel. Men are designed with a need for significance. It's what Crabb is telling us. On the other hand, he says, most women tend to struggle more with knowing that they and the people around them are secure and are able to thrive. Now, ultimately, our security comes from God, but we can be conduits of providing security to others through our love. And husbands give that to wives. I brought this morning, you should have been scared, some of you walking in that your children were here, but I brought this morning a knife and a pair of glasses. I, I use these glasses sometimes. Uh, Diane and I, when we put this knife away in a drawer, we have a little sheath that we put over it, like, like this thing on my glasses. So they're similar in that way. We put the sheath on the knife, put it in the drawer. But when this knife is not effective, when I can't use this knife effectively, I take a really hard, hard, hard substance, and I rub this knife against it to sharpen it up. I would never do that with these glasses. With these glasses, I take something really soft when they get ineffective, when I can't see. I take something really soft, and I clean them because they were designed very, very differently. Wives, uh, submit, or as the Apostle Paul says in the next couple of verses, respect your husband, first of all, because it's what he needs. Secondly, back to Peter now. Peter, he suggests that wives should submit to their husbands so that the husband may be won over to a relationship with God. So that they might be won over. They need a connection with God. It's how we find our meaning, our purpose, and our pleasure. And wives, your submission points toward that. The purpose of this behavior, the reason for it, so that husbands might be moved toward a relationship with God. I want you to listen to this refrain repeated throughout 1 Peter. He's just simply acknowledging the reality that these people live in. But listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 12, Peter said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing." You've got a feel for what's going on around these people. Chapter 3, verse 16. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may ultimately be ashamed of their slander. In other words, the recipients of this letter were being maligned, mistreated, insulted, and accused. Check this. More to the point, most scholars are convinced that there were a large number of women in the churches that Peter was addressing and that their husbands of some of these women, were among the mistreaters. They were accusing their wives of doing wrong. 
specifically in the area of spirituality. You'll hear why in a minute. And they were offering evil and insult, and they were speaking maliciously about their wives. So in the face of such behavior, how should these wives respond? By submitting to their husbands. The submission of wives is meant to be like a pleasant-sounding alarm. So some of you have this. Some of you have this alarm. If you do, you're very unlike me. I need electroshock to wake me up in the morning. But some of you wake up to this, this nice, pleasant-sounding thing that goes on and on. And our good behavior, our good behavior is like this. It's like, hello, how are you? Come to know God. It's this constant reminder that there's something higher, there's something better. The submission of wives is meant to be this pleasant-sounding alarm constantly drawing the attention of the watching husband to their own, their own better desires. Second big question, what are the boundaries of this submission? How far should it go? Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that Bill Russell preached last week, and he did a great job of setting out for us the tension in this idea of Christians submitting. Talked about to government. He got specifically an employer, specifically a slave. He even brought up the illustration of our HOA, and we all moaned when he did. And Bill said that there are, we're called to submit, but there are legitimate limits to our submission. Well, the same applies to wives. So Peter doesn't spell it out, but it's implicit in everything he says. I mean, complete deference ordinarily meant that the wife would wholeheartedly accept the husband's religion. That's what Roman society expected. But for Peter and for all Christians, that was non-negotiable. Complete deference was offered only to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that deference, the deference to Jesus, was the cornerstone on which submission to husbands would be laid. And in some cases, this wouldn't have felt very much like submission to a Roman-era ancient Near Eastern man. You mean, you're not going to worship my gods and pray to my ancestors? But over time, if she followed God's advice, her life in deference would convince him that she really was his wife. She really did want to submit herself to him. Over time, he would hopefully hear the constant reminder of her gentle spirit and ultimately would ask, what is it about you? So I think it would be fair for us to ask Peter. Why not let wives off the hook? Well, you know, why not let them just completely live without restriction? I mean, we're, we're free in Christ, right? In Christ, there's no longer any distinctions like slave or free, male or female. By the way, that's a quote from the Apostle Paul. And that's an incredible, radical thing for him to have said. So why not forget this submission thing? But no, wives submit, Peter says. Not because your husband is your Lord, Jesus Christ is your Lord, so that your husband might be won over. It's interesting that Peter doesn't get very specific about what submission looks like. He leaves it up to the individual wife. He leaves a lot of things implied or just unsaid, but he does get very specific about one thing. Did you find that interesting? He gets specific about their fashion sense. He said, wives, as a way of submitting to your husbands, do dress to impress men but dress for the glory of God and to highlight your inner beauty. i got to ask us to marinate in that for a minute. That's kind of incredible if you think about it, because these New Testament guys are so often accused of being misogynistic and chauvinistic, and here is Peter sounding like a 20th century feminist. Women, your worth doesn't come from your ability to impress men or to attract men by the way you dress. 
That's exactly what Dorothy Day and Gloria Steinem would have said. Maybe they were reading from 1 Peter when they criticized the fashion industry. Wives, as a way of submitting to God, submit to your husband, and do so in particular through your fashion sense. All right, the third uh, thing that Peter addresses in this is, what will husbands notice about their submissive wives? And we do this quickly. Uh, Peter lists three things, really. In verse 2, he says, their reverence and their purity. And here he means their reverence for God, of course. Then in verse 4, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then in verse 6, the fact that they do good without being afraid. This, by the way, is a model for all of us. This offers a blueprint for how all of us should be experienced by others around us in all settings. So wives, submit to your husbands. Secondly, if we're going to really understand this passage, we need to distance ourselves from how this passage has so often been used i got to put a quote up on the screen for you here. In their insightful little book called Boundaries, psychologists Henry Cloud and John Townsend say this, we have never seen a submission problem that did not have a controlling husband at its root. Whenever I talk about this issue with young couples, I always remind young husbands that the issue of submission doesn't concern them. Husbands aren't told to bring their wives into submission. Wives are told to offer it. And let's also remind ourselves that it's not Peter's intention in this passage. But by the way, what I'm about to say, convinced is true, it's going to be harder for those of you who've been around this a long time. If you've been around the Bible a long time, this may be hard, but stay with it. We need to remind ourselves that it's not Peter's intention in this passage to establish the right hierarchy in the home. That's not what he's doing. That's how this is often thought about. That's not what he's doing. In other words, he's not trying to say, now wives, the important thing for you to remember is that the husband is really the boss. The grounding for this lesson, the reason this word goes to wives, it goes all the way back to chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. If you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that we talked about that verse and we said that that verse was essentially an introduction to the next section that followed. We said that in the following chapter and a half, Peter would lay out some specifics as to what those good deeds looked like. So he began by encouraging all of us to submit to every governing authority, even if it is unbelieving authority. Then he addressed slaves submitting to their masters, even if they're harsh masters. Then he moved to the home and encouraged wives to submit to their husbands, even if the husbands were unbelieving husbands. Why this deferential attitude is so un-American? Well, in every case, we submit so that those who are witnessing our behavior might experience our good deeds, and it will ring like an alarm, and ultimately, they will glorify God on the day he visits. Also, did you notice in each of Peter's examples, he focuses on the underdog. He focuses on the person not in the position of power, the citizen, the slave, the ancient Near Eastern wife. He's not commending them for their lower social or economic or gender position. He's not saying that's the way it's supposed to be. He's just acknowledging the reality. And he's encouraging them to live in that place in a way that points to the goodness and glory of God. That's Peter's primary concern always. That's why he spends most of his time talking to wives here. 
Can you see, this is really another call to endurance. Peter is never primarily concerned about protecting our rights or our territory. Peter is never primarily concerned about protecting our rights or our territory. He's concerned that God gets bragged about. We'll get back to that in a minute. The third thing we we said we need to do in order to rightly understand this passage is look at what it says about husbands. We're going to do this quickly because Peter did it quickly. We're going to break this down phrase by phrase in what uh, Peter says. Once again, let's do our best to remove our post-sexual revolution glasses or uh, some of you are going to hyperventilate unnecessarily over some of what Peter says. So husbands, live with your wives, Peter starts out. And the implication here assumes everything about marriage. There's one translation that translates this, husbands, cohabitate with your wives. In other words, he's thinking about the relational, the logistical, and the physical aspects of marriage. That's what this phrase means. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Rich, rich phrase there. The NIV translates this, be compassionate, but I think it's really more robust than that. In other words, don't be a brute, men. Physically, in your arguments, with your opinions, don't force your way, don't dominate. One commentary I read this week suggested that this note, to to live with your wives in an understanding way, combined with the following phrase, to honor your wives, is essentially a call to, quote, love your wife with a special kind of love that seeks to really know them and know what they need, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and then which seeks to provide what they need. Husbands, Peter continues, honor them as the weaker vessel. All right. If there's any woman here who short circuits when you hear these kind of things from the Bible, I need to offer you a piece of sidebar advice. Now, consider the source. I admit I'm an old man, but I want you to check your heart on this. When Peter uses the phrase weaker vessel, he's not trying to establish the dominant men shade at women. He's not disrespecting women. He's not even unknowingly standing on top of generations of sexism. He's simply assuming a physical reality, and he's speaking tenderly, and we should read it that way. And sometimes when we get all up in arms about what we're afraid the Bible is saying to to us, we're honestly exhibiting exactly the opposite of the kind of spirit that Peter is advocating. Submit to my husband. What? This is exactly the opposite of what Peter is telling us to do. When we're demanding our rights, we're rarely in a place of spiritual endurance. Final note to husbands. In the last part of this direction, Peter is saying, husbands, your wives are your co-heirs spiritually. And you need to treat them with loving respect. And that last phrase is a doozy. Otherwise, your spiritual life will be blocked. This is for selfish reasons, men. All right, the final thing, and this is the don't miss this point. This is the walking away point for us. I want to look at the, we've already hinted at it, but I want to look at the timeless principle that's underneath this passage. In a word, Peter wants us to remember that regardless of the challenges that are presented to us, we are called to endure. Regardless of what's going on in your life, we are called to endure for the sake of others hearing about God's love. I want to highlight this principle in an odd way. Remember, this call by Peter to endure what life presents at us. It doesn't mean roll over and die, whatever. It also doesn't mean to live in a way that's highly entitled. Hey, I want to see your manager. 
But there's the middle road of endurance. Trusting God, surrendering to Him. And this is the call constantly on our lives. So I'm going to ask a really odd question to kind of, I don't know, stir the pot and get us thinking about this concept. I want to ask you, what does Jesus extremism look like? What does Jesus extremism look like? We know what Muslim extremism looks like. It looks like uh, people hustling to get guns and bombs so they can kill and destroy as many people as possible regardless of who they are. It looks like hiding in dark corners. It looks like doing anything you can to raise the money to fund that, including illicit drugs. We know what Hindu extremism looks like. It looks like large crowds of people brandishing fire and clubs and going to mosques and churches and burning and killing men, women, and children. It looks like extended corrupt activity designed to eliminate all other belief systems. By the way, we've also seen Christian extremism, haven't we? The Crusades, Salem witch trials, Spanish inquisitions, and we could give some much more current examples. I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about Jesus extremism. When you take Jesus to the extreme, what does that look like? I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about the movement of heart and spirit that grew out of the teaching and the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does being extreme in that look like? Well, Jesus' extremism does not look like bombing Muslim villages. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm not saying what the U.S. government should or shouldn't do. I'm talking about people who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus' extremism looks like, instead, sending our children into the heart of those villages to tell them that God loves them. It looks like living humbly and submissively underneath people whose hearts are far from God, regardless of how they treat us, even if they kill us. Reminding them that there's a better way to do life, the way of trust and surrender and hoping in God. Jesus' extremism looks like enduring whatever difficulty life offers with grace and hope. And, and continuing to lead such good lives that others will see and glorify God. What about when things are at their worst? What does Jesus' extremism look like? I'm going to read another passage. Chapter 2, Peter says this, But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because... Christ suffered in that way, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. We are not people who live like victims, shrinking back in the corner with fear when things get difficult, falling back, quitting, allowing ourselves to be crippled by self-pity. And we are not people who have entitled spirits 
constantly concerned with my rights or my way, intent on getting what I deserve. We are people who endure. Our lives are marked by reverence and purity, by the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, and by the fact that we do good without being afraid. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm aware that this is a standard of behavior that we cannot meet at work, in our everyday lives, in our homes. We can't do this unless you inhabit us and, in effect, do it through us. And we ask this morning for the miracle of that. I don't know how many people are here this morning, God, even including our boys and girls. There are that many different things going on, different chemistry, calculus, that different sets of trials, different challenges, different joys. And this morning we bring it all to you and we acknowledge that you're in it purposing, designing, leading, guiding, directing, even here this morning, even for us to hear this this morning. And Father, we want you to know in the midst of it, no matter what comes our way, we're going to focus. You're going to be our vision. We're going to endure victoriously. And when we forget on Thursday that we said this today, then you remind us. You call us to that new and better way. Call us to live such good lives that those around us will look and say, what is up with you? And then we'll explain. I pray especially today, Lord, for the marriages here. I pray that husbands will live with their wives in an understanding way, that they will honor them. And I pray that wives will submit to their husbands, that bring their lives under their husbands, that they will defer with reverence and purity, doing good without being afraid. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that said, we're going to stand, we're going to pray, and then we'll head out. Thank you for coming. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. We just pray, Lord, that you use us this week to make an impact in our community. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.